Hello, everyone. This is Richard Robertson from the Dean's Office. I'm joined today by Peter Sorotin and also by my fellow colleagues in the piano department, Yating Chang and Patrice Ewald. We have the great fortune to be joined by uh, Maestro Stuart Molina from the Harrisburg Symphony Orchestra for a concert that's coming up in the, the second week in September. And this will be our third time, actually, to do a concert of two piano music. And uh, he'll be joining us for an opening selection and then also for the final uh, 1812 overture at the end of the concert. This concert is the first concert in two concerts that are going to deal with uh, war and peace, that are going to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the publication of Tolstoy's novel. And this, Peter, was your idea to do. And so I guess the first question is just how do you get from a novel to music and how do you connect two concerts to music? What was in your mind when you started thinking about that? Well, what was in my mind was the general state of the world affairs, which uh, are, you know, today as filled with war um, as it was in the early 1800s, um, and the world constantly is experiencing tension between unresolved conflicts and um, tenuous peace and outright war. Um, and we have been quite spoiled by you know decades of peace in this country, but the rest of the world is um, pretty much involved in conflict on a continuous basis. Um, there hasn't really been a day of worldwide peace since the end of World War II. Um, and that's something that is always on my mind and how art uh, connects to this and how art can illuminate and bring people together and uh, work toward peace. Um, and then of course when a uh, novel like this, which is a monumental document, um, timeless document about people's experiences and choices under stress in war, um, and also about just the deep psychology behind people's choices that um, uh, far, far exceeds the time and place that it was describing. Uh, when this kind of anniversary came along, I was thinking that um, this would be really interesting uh, to look at from the musical perspective. Um, and then, of course, growing up in Russia, I knew that Tolstoy was an amateur pianist and even composer. He composed the waltz that's occasionally performed in Russia. He was a very close friend with Sergei Taneev, uh, a wonderful uh, Russian composer, one of the teachers of Rachmaninoff, Medner, Prokofiev, um, and other giants of uh, Russian music of the 20th century. Um, and in fact, they were regularly playing chess in Tolstoy's estate. Um, and when Taneev would lose, Tolstoy would ask him to play some Chopin, because Chopin was Tolstoy's favorite composer. And so all of these things kind of came up. Uh, am, am I remembering yeah. correctly that one of his stories is called the Kreutzer Sonata? Yes, that's yeah. that's true, and it's uh, it's a wonderful uh, short story, and it's um, music is prominently featured yes. uh, in, in the live concert, um, and the whole story is actually woven out of um, the concept, and and so that inspired me to look a little bit. Uh, into piano repertoire specifically, uh, but also the piano as an instrument is the closest to, uh, it gives composers the most opportunity to, to create dialogue 
and it's the closest I think to writing a novel that composer can can get um, when you write for piano or orchestra or you know when you have opera and you have cast of hundred people you know you can create all these things you can create drama but for a single instrument piano is the only instrument that is capable to really um, give that opportunity um, with the contrapoint with multi-voice kind of textures and goes all the way back to, to Bach. And I think that's part of the reason perhaps Tolstoy liked it, because um, it was a very conversational instrument. Um, We've also used the word narrative many times. Yes, and of course music to me is a narrative. It's, as Mendelssohn said, it communicates things that, that are too, defi too definite for words. Um, and so um, when I thought about it a little more, I was thinking that War and Peace is very much about the history between Russia and France, and the history is very rich and the cultures are extremely connected because during French Revolution there was a massive exodus of French who found refuge in Russia. And uh, their art and their culture influenced Russian culture on the deepest level. The entire aristocracy was brought up speaking French at home more than Russian, so it was uh, just an integral part of uh, the culture. And of course, uh, in, in 1917, after communist revolution, vast majority of uh, Russian artists and composers who could do that escaped and settled in France. And they also influenced French education, French art, um, and so these connections run deep um, and so I was thinking that it would be really interesting to look at composers that, uh, from both countries um, and create a program that represents these connections. Right, so our piano program is mostly French composers. Now Chopin, of course, kind of straddles these two worlds in a way, um, but he spent his mature years all in Paris. And his father was French. Yes, exactly. Which is, yes. Which is something that... Uh, in Poland, they don't like to mention. <laughs> but um, Chopin, of course, was definitely influenced by both by yeah. his Polish heritage because of you know mazurkas, waltzes, polonaise. He, he definitely um, was very connected to Poland, but um, his uh, piano virtuosity and he, mm -hmm. sort of what he saw and witnessed in Paris um, also were a huge part of sure. uh, of what he was. Um, and, and so um, the one piece that I wanted to have on the program was 1812 Overture. Um, yes. And of course, that's the most probably well-known piece on this program, and everybody hears it on July 4th, uh, yes. which I still, after living in this country for a quarter century, still can't really quite understand why. Um, even though I've participated in many performances and I'm delighted every time. Um, <laughs> but it is a, a piece that was commissioned by um, Russian... Um, government to commemorate 50th anniversary of uh, victory over Napoleon and specifically uh, for the opening of the Church of the Christ the Savior in Moscow inside of which on the walls were written names of every soldier who died in the war. Mm -hmm. um, this is it's, it's a gorgeous uh, cathedral really, it's not a church, mm -hmm. it's, it's a large building that was blown up by Stalin in 1930s to make way for some constructivist 
communist monument, which never came to fruition. Um, <laughs> in fact, for many years, uh, there was a public swimming pool in that oh. site. But they've rebuilt it. And mm. now it's the made exact replica of it. Now it stands in the same place where um, where it was. I think they rebuilt it in the early 2000s. This has always struck me when I've been in Europe that you see so many more monuments than you do here in the States. And you do see monuments like that here in the States as well. And the Vietnam War Memorial, of course, is the best example of that, listing all the names of the soldiers who died there. But um, it just seems that uh, when I've been in Europe they, that these kinds of lists of people are just everywhere, oh, everywhere yeah. you turn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the, Napoleon famously, actually in, in the War and Peace, there's a part where he's looking at the Moscow and he's just amazed at how many churches yes. there were. And in fact, there were over 1,600 churches at that time. And uh, when Stalin died in 1953, there were less than 200 left. Yeah. So in you know less than 35 years, from the revolution, they just completely destroyed, and and most of them were really quite remarkable monuments of architecture, all the way back to you know Mongols, and um, so so that that piece is really a meaningful addition to this program, and of course I think it should be just a great fun to hear you know four pianists playing this. I think it's going to get as close to orchestral sonority as you can with with two Steinways on stage. And yeah. It's going to be an interesting experience to play that. <laughs> I can say that for sure. Well, the piece calls for cannons, but yes. in the absence of them. I don't, I, you know, I've looked for the cannons and I don't see them. I thought there would be some clusters somewhere, you know. Well, but... speaking of, of cannons, years ago um, uh -huh. I've played a July 4th concert with Lancaster Symphony, uh -huh. and the mayor of Lancaster at the time was an avid collector and restorer of Civil War cannons, oh, and okay. they used several of these cannons <laughs> for performance. It was an open field, and it was, it was a kind of a, a great addition. Mm -hmm. This is our one, um, for us in the United States, Civil War, of course, is one time that we did have war on our own soil. So just going back to your original comments that war has been going on uh, nonstop since yeah. World War II, we've been involved in so much of that, but it's all been removed. All been away somewhere. Oh, absolutely, because there are two oceans on either side. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's always happened somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We are today. It's just interesting that that's that's been our history. The Civil War was the one thing that really tore this country up. I think uh, in the in the early years. Well, and it's it is amazing that this country emerged the way it did after the Civil War <laughs> yes. and maintained peace. Because very often you look at the the history of Russia, for example, or other countries that had civil wars, usually one side would win and establish tyranny and completely mm -hmm. destroy the other side. And the fact that Lincoln didn't do that was very wise, and I think that's why we are where we are today. Yes, and why we honor Lincoln so much, yes, as well. Yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. And, um, but there's always potential for war, because yes. it's always easier to to resort to, to violence when one has yes. that option than yes. to rise above. And so that's a topic that I'm always kind of keeping in the back of my mind. So for the first concert, this is a two-concert um, plan here. So the first concert is coming up very soon with the, with the pianos. But in February, you'll be doing a chamber music concert. And that's all Russian. Can you say just a little bit about that? We'll come back to it later. But uh... Yes. Uh, well, the idea behind that program was uh, to um, capture somehow, in, it's, it's an ambitious project, to capture mm -hmm. in a two-hour evening, 
uh, a transition from a millennia of old world into this post-conflict, uh, completely reinvented new new normal. Um, and I think a lot of countries and cultures experience that. We've experienced that here after 9-11. Yes. Because the United States has never experienced anything like it. And we certainly live in a different country today than we were in 1999. Um, and Russia has uh, been dramatically uh, and dramatically changed by the events of uh, 1917 the revolution and so um, it was also changed by the French invasion 100 years earlier um, and it wasn't the same country after that um, and so I was thinking that music there is music that is clearly of an old world so to speak yes. the late Russian romanticism which is loved worldwide Tchaikovsky uh, you know Rimsky Korsakov Aransky um, is another composer who is a great melodic writing, uh, emotionally rich music, um, and I thought that that would be a wonderful representation of uh, old uh, 19th century Russia. And um, when I spoke with Alan Heinlein, who was thinking of choreographing the piece, I thought, what better way to evoke uh, 19th century Russia than a ballet? Um, and so that's how that part of this project came together and then I was thinking that the juxtaposition with this should be something that really um, captures not just the 20th century style of music but the mood of um, peace that is very tenuous um, because after the revolution and civil war yes there was a peace uh, but it was a peace that uh, was established by Stalin's iron rule and um, so it's it's a very um, uh, complex um, psychologically state that I was trying to capture. And Shostakovich's quintet, of course, is a um, monumental piece of music. Um, and it was written at the time, uh, even though it's written before World War II, it, it's full of just this underlying conflict. And uh, you, you have the sense that things could erupt um, at any moment, um, but the, on the surface, it's there are large parts of it that are quite pleasant to listen mm -hmm. to. Actually, I'm I'm intrigued by that, and we'll talk about we'll talk about Debussy and Mio actually in contrast to that. It'll be an interesting thing, interesting discussion to have actually. So, but thanks, Peter. So the first piece on the program is going to be uh, Scaramouche by Darius Mio and Yao-Ting Chang and Stuart Molina will be performing that. Actually, it's actually the, the probably the lightest piece on the yes, program. Yes. So, I always remember the children's song that's in, I believe it's in the first movement, right? And does it go it, through the whole piece? Or, am I it's, remembering it's right? It's in the first movement, but actually he took two cues from the the Flying Doctor, that's the title after you translate it. Mm -hmm. I see what I can pronounce is in French, uh, Le Medicine Volant. That's, mm -hmm. and so the, the, the material is used in the outer two movements. The last one is actually, um, it has a Brazil, the Brazilian yes. uh, samba-like um, thing. And I, it's um, the middle movement, the slow movement, it's the moder moderate um, tempo marking. Mm -hmm. It's actually from uh, overture of the Bolivar, so um, it's a very calm, um, very serene 
uh, movement, which is the total contrast yes. of the two outer ones. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, movement. Yes. So it's, it's very um, lyrical, if I remember right. Isn't the middle it? movement. It's very, very lyrical. Yes. As I say, it's just a, out of it's it's total contrast from the outer two, which the, are very energetic and rhythmic. The first movement is uh, right away. Um, it's lively and uh, mm -hmm. very energetic. It has a lot of um, jazz mm -hmm. um, elements in there. So um, it's I have not actually rehearsed with Stuart yet. Tomorrow is going to be our first rehearsal, yes. so I might have more to add to it. <laughs> but from just practicing. Um, the parts, um, it's, it's, you could mistake it as it's very simple writing, but then there was sudden turn, um, mm -hmm. and the uh, disposition of the register also, and the, uh, to change the uh, sound and the character, the immediacy mm -hmm. of it. It's fun, but yes. then, which creates some um, technical challenges because it's supposed to be a clean C chord to C, but when you have to jump really far, that becomes a very hard thing yes. uh, in the fast movement. So at least from practicing it, that's what I'm, I'm um, getting. Um, but that middle movement just have a lot of these beautiful French um, color and actually a lot of dotted rhythm that's not, not very... A lot of times, the dotted rhythms are used to propel momentum, but in this case, it's just for you to stretch and yes. um, feel the the line and the calm and the colors mm -hmm. of the the music. So, and it's very the middle movement writing is actually a, a lot of time we're not playing at the same time. So, yes, that's so remember. which is very unusual because the outer movement we always playing at the same time, no matter how the uh, rhythm is shifting. So, like I said, it's a, it's a total contrast, not just in mood and color, but also in terms of writing, uh, texture-wise. Now, you said these came from the Flying Doctor and from Bolivar, mm -hmm. and, but I believe you said he's not actually using music from those pieces, he's simply pulling themes from them and then writing new pieces out of them. Correct. That, yeah. Correct. Correct. And... Um, uh, I never really quite knew the connection between Mio and Brazil. I knew there was a connection there, and you can certainly hear it in the last movement of this piece. And so I was a bit surprised to learn that he actually lived there for two years, and I believe he was working with the French ambassador to mm -hmm. Brazil when he was when he was there, and and he was there during World War One, so. Um, uh, or around that time mm -hmm. in, in the teens. And, of course, this piece was written 20 years later. So, obviously, the influence of that Brazilian music and of the things that he heard there stuck with him for, for quite a while um, uh, dur during his lifetime. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really just a, a wonderful piece. So did you choose it or did, did Stuart choose it? Stuart chose it. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, uh, he always wanted to play it, and I, I believe he had performed it couple of times uh, mm -hmm. in other places with other pianists, but um, he suggested this. So. Uh -huh. Yeah. That, well, I'm looking forward to hearing it because it's, it's, it is a favorite piece of mine from, from having taught it, uh, and it's going to be great to hear. There's a, definitely a, a lot of comic um, element in the piece from out, in the outer movement as well, and yeah. I think that connection to the Italian um, comic character yes. that is definitely there. Yes. So yeah. yeah. It's gonna be a lot of fun. So the second piece on the program is on Blanca Noir.
by Debussy in black and white. Sorry, in white and black. So anyway, uh, this, is, this piece was written by Debussy. It was written during World War I. So probably the next most recent piece on the program. Um, so Patrice, you want to talk about you chose this piece. So what 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 brought you to this piece? Really, I did not realize that the um, theme of the program was based on War and Peace, the novel. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking of looking for works that had the theme of War and Peace, War. And so I just went th um, through a list. And I did not realize it, originally realize that this was written during uh, World War I for Debussy. Mm -hmm. But that was actually the reason why I picked it. When I read that it was written during World War I, it seemed to fit the idea of conflict anyway. So that was the main reason why I chose that. I think it fits perfectly with Peter's ideas of looking at the novel, which is based on the war in 1812, mm -hmm. Napoleon's attempted conquest of Russia. But then the sort of repeat of that in World War I, when things were reversed and Russia went through its revolution. and So here's Debussy talking about that war, which was so pivotal. Pivotal, That war probably led to the Russian Revolution, you know, and, and people coming back, and as Peter said, people coming back the other way, people leaving uh, Russia and going, going to France. Uh, what, was, what was Debussy's uh, view of the war? Well, Debussy himself um, was very proud of his heritage. So I think that you need to understand that first is that he was a Frenchman. And so he wanted to be able to participate and was not able to participate because he was um, very ill. Um, he had someone close to him um, die as a young man in the war. Um, the connection was his publisher, Durand. It was a, a nephew of his, of his publisher. So he had these connections along with his feel, not feeling well. Um, and I think he was actually, I don't, I'm just saying this, this is my opinion, that he knew that he was nearing the end of his life. And so he was um, staying on, on, in a little village on Normandy and was um, composing, madly composing. And it did not take him long to write this piece, but it was definitely influenced by what was happening around him and how his strong connection to his French heritage. And, of course, it has uh, real war references in the piece, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and I th it's a three-movement piece, and he did dedicate two of the three movements to Russian, so I think that's interesting to have the Russian-French connection with that. He also wrote so many melody and was connected to um, literary uh, people, and poetry um, influenced much of his life composition. And so each of these movements has just a little snippet of poetry that um, I think tells you the mood of, of each, each piece. So I like that connection. When you actually read the little bit of poetry for each piece, I think it really helps create an image for me as a performer. And so the first movement talks about not taking part in a dance. And uh, in this case, the dance, of course, is the war. And you said it's his frustration at not being able to support the war in a more direct manner. That is correct. But yeah. musically, it's definitely, it's kind of a crazy waltz, isn't it? It's kind of a, a very, very much a dance, dancing movement. Yes. And then the second movement, of course, talks about uh, uh, those that are sort of... It, it just feels like war. I mean, you just feel like you're in a battle. And um, 
I, I, the, but the poetry at the beginning is talking about those who do not support the, you know, it's almost like a curse on those who do not support the realm of France yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, deprived, I'm just going to quote just a little bit, deprived yeah. of peace and hope, for he is undeserving of virtue, who wishes evil on the kingdom of France. Right. And I think that uh, really depicts what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, the, the movement itself is filled with... Um, sounds of war. I mean, you can't listen to it and not hear that. And then I think we were both surprised to realize that he uses a very familiar hymn, A Mighty Fortress, to represent the German army that's, that has invaded his country. Yeah. Correct, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, and, yeah. I, and when you look at the tempo markings, actually, um, the tempo markings themselves give you a, a, a picture of war. Um, molto tumultuoso. Yes. I mean, I, that's one of my favorites. Um, alert. Yes. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but um, anyway, I, I just, you can't help but yes. find some meaning in, in, in how you want to interpret what's going on. Yeah, there's one time, one time it says in French, I think, surement tumultueux, which, you know, mutedly tumultuous, however <laughs> that is, <laughs> and then later, very tumultuous in Italian, and then uh, the one that struck me, of course, is that one word I won't even try to pronounce uh, at the end. Uh, uh, in the final section of the movement that uh, translates contemplative or meditative and even reverential. Mm, and it always mm, felt to oh, me yes. like at the, at the end of the battle, you know, there's a sense of, of um, reverence towards the, the war dead, the yes. people that have given their lives in this, in this battle. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then the final movement, uh, how do you understand that quote? Uh, uh, that's a good question. Um, very, winter, yeah. I, actually, winter, thou art but a villain. Yeah. And I think it's reflective. Yeah. I think it's um, very reflective. And um, I, I think he wanted to um, also, maybe not based on this, um, reflect on the hope. He did yeah. not want to end hmm. at a complete loss. It's almost as if, uh, on the one hand, he felt bad about not being able to support the war effort. But at the same time, there's no glorification of war. It's just this is this is winter. This is a, you know, and uh, it's nothing but a villain. Mm, and, yeah. Uh, uh, and but at the same time, hope that it will come out of it in a better place. I'm not sure where I found this, but I, I like this idea too. Debussy expresses hope for a victorious peace after the burdens of wartime. Yes. And I think yeah. that. Um, also comes through in the yeah. images as you're playing through it. Now you mentioned that uh, that he dedicated this to, a, to uh, he dedicated it to Stravinsky, actually Igor Stravinsky, mm -hmm. but he also quotes from the Firebird. Yes, and he had recently heard the Firebird, yes. so I think it's interesting that he was able to uh, pull yeah. that in into his composition. And of course, that's one of the most famous connections between uh, Russia and France. The, mm -hmm. the the Russian ballet headed up by Diaghilev and the the pairing of Diaghilev with uh, Stravinsky mm. that produced uh, Firebird and Rite of Spring and Petrushka and those very famous ballets uh, and other works as well. Well, it's, it's a great piece and I look forward to playing it with you soon. Yes. Me too. <laughs> uh, and then uh, you and Yating will, will be playing a, a little Chopin. <laughs> <laughs> I like the word that uh, Yating used in describing um, how it should sound. I don't know if I should even say it. Um, it should it's, sound like the souffle. Like souffle. A lot of the fast, light, delicate, yeah. um, filigree type of writing. 
um, it actually reminds me a lot of the pursuit that Chopin has written later. Yes. Um, yes. The the piece that we are playing is actually quite early. I think Chopin composed it when he was eighteen. Yes. Um, mm. So, but already you could see a lot of the same type of um, writing. Like I say, in pursuit, actually, even in um, the E minor Chopin concerto, uh, uh, the same type of fast, yes. delicate, but you know, very lyrical writing. And concertos were also early pieces, and I was fascinated to read as I was looking into this that um, the Opus Ten Etudes, he began those at the same time. Mm -hmm. So he was writing some of his most mature works, and it's not—he was 18, but he was already writing some of his most mature music even right. at that time. Right. And it's just it's just fascinating that he was at that at that level. And of course, it began as a solo piece, but then that same summer he reworked it for two pianos. Right. Apparently, he was also actually not very happy with it. Uh -huh. So, okay. uh, I I don't think it was um, one of his favorites. Well, he never published. He it. never published it. Yeah. He did not yeah. actually think it was, it was worth. <laughs> Fortunately, other you know wiser heads prevailed after right. he passed away, and <laughs> and now we have it today. So, <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to hearing it uh, uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we find that it's actually in terms of ensemble, it's written so well that um, the dialogue between the two it passed back and forth. It's actually quite well written. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, before that, you and I will be playing a piece by Cécile Chaminade. Yes. And the Duo Symphonique. And mm -hmm. so uh, I have found out that it was written in, in 1905. I have found out that it's really hard to learn much about Cécile Chaminade, even though she was an incredibly well-known pianist at the turn of the century, uh, toured England and the United States, had, uh, I think, something like 400 works published, mm. had written a piece for piano and orchestra, and part of a ballet that was performed to, to very positive reviews, oh, not a ballet, an opera, excuse me, that was performed to very positive reviews. And all this, all this success, and yet there's, there's very little uh, about her. So I went to, the, went to our library and I found one book, and it was published in the early 80s, and it said, this is the first scholarly book written about Chaminade and I can't find anything else <laughs> about her. So this is, this is a remarkable thing for this uh, rather remarkable woman who, mm -hmm. um, who uh, was, was a very influential pianist and composer uh, uh, at, at that time. And of course she lived, she lived into the 1940s and, um, but didn't write as much music as she, as she aged. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting, I was reading today that um, she looked at Saint-Saëns, and this music reminds me of Saint-Saëns and of that sort of French school. I think you said this as well, that it's that kind of, the pianism in it is... Oh, the pianism in it, yes, yeah. because I, I think harmonically that um, Chauvin has definitely taken it to another level, I mean, in terms of chromaticism. And yes, yes. So, but yes, in terms of sound um, and also texture. Yes, yeah. Well, it's sort of, I don't know, when we were... There were times when you you would play things out of your part when we were first rehearsing this, and I would say, I remember once I said, "Well, it's Tristan. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the overture to Tristan is older because of the chromaticism that that's that's there, and just the way some things connect from one chord to another. Mm -hmm. uh, but the pianism, to me, has that sort of light and sometimes almost scherzando kind of feel to it. It's not a scherzando piece at all. Right. But the playing, it's leggero, I guess is the word. Right, I'm the clarity for. of the lines are needed yes. um, to, to actually, it's a very important part of the texture, yeah, actually. Yeah. So. 
there's some talk, you know, because she was a, because she's a woman, of course, that all she was allowed to do was write for the piano, and that uh, at that time that there was just this sort of, well, you wouldn't be able to handle a full orchestra. So almost looking at, you know, <laughs> this kind of patronizing, unfortunate <laughs> attitude that was there, and uh, from what I've read, and I always I always look at this and think this is uh, the reason she called it duo symphonique is because this was what she could write that was orchestral. And it's really interesting, you know, comparing this with, um, think of Brahms' first piano concerto, which started as a symphony. And, um, and he, when he was first working it out, he, he was so afraid of the orchestra, maybe afraid is the wrong word. He didn't want to go, he wrote it for two pianos originally. Right. Uh, because, and he intended to orchestrate it, but the piano took over and it mm -hmm. became a piano concerto. And uh, one wonders if, if she had been given the opportunity, you know, what she might have done on the orchestral level. But right. it's, it's that kind of a piece. And um, uh, it, really interesting structure, almost uh, sonata-like with the exposition and recapitulation. But then the middle section is not a development so much as a, uh, almost a, a slow movement. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say it could be a piece by itself, really. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. A very beautiful back and forth. I, 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 when I, uh, for those of you um, that aren't pianists, most uh, two piano scores are written with both parts on one page where you can see what the other person is doing. But for some reason, this piece by Shamanad was not published that way. And so uh, Yating and I only have our own parts in front of us. And uh, that meant that I had to actually study her part and compare <laughs> and separately. And uh, and when I so when I first after I'd been working on the piece for a while and went back and really started looking at how it was put together, I was really fascinated by the way she weaves the two parts together. And I know that both of us just go back and forth with uh, leading, being the leading voice. It's mm -hmm. constantly going back and forth. As the Debussy is very much like that as well, uh, but in a very different way. Uh, these are. Um, it's 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 interesting writing because it's so thick in one way and yet so transparent at the mm -hmm. same time. Um, so anyway, I'm looking forward looking forward to playing it with you. Same here. <laughs> yes. Well, the only piece we haven't talked about is 1812. I want cannons. Yes, I know. And see, I, I'm really surprised at I that. I thought that we could so figure out some way to make a piano sound like a cannon. Some. Somebody playing secondo should be playing clusters in the bottom of the piano for the cannon shots, you know? But I think this arrangement has us too busy to have time for it. I have some, I have some um, thing, some things, but I don't think it's the cannon Not part. the cannon, no. no. And of course, you can't have the bells either. Uh, nevertheless, with four, four people playing on two pianos, we can get a lot of... A lot of sounds. Cacophony. So, yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be a great uh, conclusion to the concert anyway. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, anyway, thank you so much for doing this. and uh, Looking will... forward to it. I am looking forward to it. We're definitely looking forward to yes. the performance. But thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Richard Robertson from the Dean's Office.